You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Happy Sunday to you, wherever or whenever you're watching. Welcome, everybody, online. Glad we're all here together. A couple of things before we get going. First of all, next week we'll be beginning something brand new. If you have enjoyed learning Jonah's story, and even if you haven't, <laughs> we're going to be continuing on in a similar trajectory for the next five weeks. Starting next week, we'll be looking at five different, what are called minor prophets. There are writers with some strange names, but powerful messages. We're going to see what they show us about the heart of God. It's called Return to Me. Return to Me. I think we've got a graphic for it there. Yeah. The heart of God through the minor prophets. Hope you'll join us. And second, of course, tomorrow is July 4th. It's nation's birthday. I want to take just a moment to give thanks for the nation in which we live as challenging as it can be right now. God loves this nation. He loves the nations of the world, loves the people of the world. And so for the United States of America, I give thanks. Lord, help us and heal us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's begin our time in God's word. It's going to be from the end of Jonah 3 and all of chapter 4. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, the God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you do not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And thus ends the reading of the book of Jonah and God's word and all his people said, amen. Yeah, today is our last look at the book of Jonah. It's all about the Hebrew prophet of the same name. He was given a message to go and preach against the wickedness of the capital city of the Assyrian empire back in the eighth century BC, the largest city in the world in that day, the city of Nineveh. And so today in this final chapter, we're gonna finally meet the hero of the book, yay, 
But you've noticed by now, if you've been with us at all in this series, that the hero hasn't been, still isn't going to be, Jonah. As a matter of fact, not only is Jonah not the hero of his own book, not only is he not the protagonist of the story, as a matter of fact, he's kind of the opposite. He is kind of the antagonist. He's kind of the villain. He acts against God. He mostly works more for bad than for good. And so every week in every episode here on the Bible Plus channel, that's where you are. Thank you very much. We have seen someone or something acting better than Jonah. Back in week one, it was the pagan sailors who were better. They repent, pray, ditch their idols. In week two, It was the fish who obeyed God better than Jonah. In week three, last week, it was the pagan king of Nineveh. And in chapter four today, it's even worse. As we just read, it's it's literally a worm (laughs) that obeys God better than Jonah. It's like this game of how low can you go, Jonah? I mean, it's supposed to be kind of funny, like literally a fish and a worm and the wind and some anonymous sailors and a pagan king can obey God better than his very own prophet. But all of these failures, though, have been doing something in specific. You can see it in the word, we read it, uh, the word provided. Some translations say appointed, but it's most literally the word prepared. God prepares a fish, prepares a plant, prepares a worm, prepares a wind, and all of these low moments have finally prepared Jonah to meet the hero of his own book in this stunning climactic twist of an ending. They've all prepared him for an epic desert showdown with God. Jonah, prepare to meet thy maker. (laughs) What happens when Jonah meets God? Three things we're going to see. First, Jonah gets angry. Number two, God gets compassionate. Three, we get challenged. Jonah gets angry, God gets compassionate, we get challenged, so let's work together through the anger of Jonah, the compassion of God, and the lingering challenge at the end of the book. And by the way, when we get to the end, just so you know, I'm going to end a little differently with a little help from a friend. You'll know it when we get there. All right, so what happens when Jonah meets God? Let's get going. Number one, Jonah gets angry. He's kind of like the Hebrew Hulk, like don't make him angry. You won't like him when he's angry. And Jonah, we don't like you. (laughs) When you're angry, when Jonah meets God, he says this, I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. Now, of course, when it comes to the emotion, the feeling of anger, anger can be good. It can be bad, but more than anything, what anger is, is revealing It's revealing. Anger is revealed when something or someone we love is threatened. For example, you may have seen this recently. I think this was in the news this week. The actor, Tom Hanks, that guy, and his wife were out walking. Paparazzi were hounding them. One of them like physically pushed, tripped his wife. I think her name is Rita Wilson. And what did Tom do? You know, nice guy Tom. Some people have called him America's dad. Well, Tom got angry. Tom started yelling at the paps and said something not safe for work. And you're kind of like, you're like, you go, Tom, like, let him know. Now his anger, the point is, was revealed when someone he loved, something he loved was threatened. And Jonah's kind of the same way. His anger is revealing something. What is it? 
Here it is. Well, at a high level, Jonah is not angry. He's not despondent because of his failure. No, Jonah is so angry he wants to die because of his success. And this is totally the opposite of another Hebrew prophet you may have heard of named Elijah. Elijah was also despondent after he preached, but in his case, it was because the people didn't listen. They didn't repent, and the Jewish king at the time named Ahab certainly didn't. Elijah preached, and his message hardly reached anyone. But Jonah's message reached everyone. It got all the way to the top, to the king of Nineveh, who listened, personally repented. Jonah's message brought an entire city to its knees. So, so he's not angry because he's failed. He's angry and wants to die because he's succeeded. Why? Where is all of this coming from? Now, I've, I've had some dark thoughts at moments in my own life. Maybe like you, I've come face to face with this feeling. Why, why does a person, not always, but sometimes talk like this? This is not mental illness here. This is not a chemical thing as far as we know. This is not physical pain he's in. No, this is such a deep disillusionment and despondency over how things have gone. He wants to end it all. Why? Well, Jonah has lost his reason for living, his main reason for life, his meaning in life. Whatever reason Jonah had for living, it's now gone. And so here Jonah is, get the picture, he's having a conversation with God, the maker of all things, his boss, so to speak, right? He's a prophet. The savior of the Jewish people, God had rescued them from slavery, rescued Jonah in the ocean, made Israel into a great nation. And now Jonah's looking at God with a straight face and saying, I have no reason to live. I have no meaning in life anymore. This is not like I'm having a hard time, having a hard year. This is all my meaning in life. God is gone. What's the Bible word for something besides God being your ultimate meaning in life? Bible word, yeah. Idolatry. So what is Jonah's idol? What's he so angry about? Well, we saw back in week one that Jonah's idol was his own nation's success. It was Israel's security, Israel's prominence. And that's why we saw... He supported the wicked King Jeroboam II. Second Kings talks about that. Wicked King Jeroboam II had these expansionistic plans, imperialistic plans. And while the prophets, contemporaries, Hosea and Amos said, don't do it, King Jeroboam. It's bad, it's wrong, God's not behind it. Jonah said, go for it. And so here, Jonah spills all the tea. He says, oh God, this is the reason why I ran away in the first place. I ran away. I disobeyed you because I was afraid you'd forgive Jonah. And now you, you, you went and you done did it, God. Like you forgave him. Because you forgave them, I want to die. How does something good like love for country go dark when C.S. Lewis's book called The Four Loves, maybe you've heard of it, read it, C.S. Lewis talks about the love of country, both the good of it and the bad of it. And if you know his story, Lewis had fought for his own country, fought for England in World War I. He loved his nation, and yet he said this years later, speaking specifically about Nazism. He said that this, quote, we all know now that this love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. 
this love becomes a demon when it becomes a God. So he says, listen, you got to watch how far love of country goes in your own heart. But on the other hand, to all those who would say, well, then all love of nation is bad. You should hate your country. He pushes back as well. He says, that's just another form of extremism. And he says, if we reject all love of country, he said, we'd have to reject, quote, half the high poetry and half the heroic action that humanity has achieved. He's pointing out, you know this, that love of country, people, land uh, has been a source of incredible art and incredible self-sacrifice, incredible heroism, all of which move our hearts, can point our hearts to God. And if you reject, he goes, concludes like this, all love of country, all love of your own people, Lewis said this, quote, we cannot even keep Christ's lament over Jerusalem where he too exhibits love for his country. See, love for country, love for people, can, culture can be a good thing, but like any good thing, it can become a demon like it did in Jonah's heart. How? Lewis said this. He says, what starts out as good breaks bad when what starts out as a love for home or land or culture or people turns into, he said, a particular attitude to a country's past. He calls it the great deeds of our ancestors. He says, this. He says when we airbrush history, we begin to forget that our nation or our people or our group or our race are a mixed bag like everybody else's. If we are all good and they are all bad, he says, not only is that forgetting the gospel, which said that all have sinned. Some of you are like, is that in there? Yes, that's in there. (laughs) Not only will we not like that, If somebody else did that to us, said that about us, he said, now we're on the doorstep of something harmful. And he tells a story of his friend he was talking with. And his friend began to talk about how great, how glorious England was. And his friend said, you know, England is better than any other country in the world. And Lewis said, a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, a little bit of humor in his heart. He said, well, yeah, you know, we, the British, are pretty great. But doesn't every country, he said to his friend, doesn't every country like to think of themselves this way? as the bravest and the best? And the man said, well, yes, but in England, it's true. (laughs) And Lewis concluded that the final step from healthy love to evil force is when a nation or a group or a race uses its imagined superiority as a basis for exclusion, demonization, maybe even violence against another group or people or race or nation just because they believed they're superior. See, love of anything first besides God becomes a demon when it becomes a God. Someone by the name of David Foster Wallace. He was an uh, an award-winning American fiction writer. Uh, He was not a Christian. And he wrote a bunch of books and essays. And in 2005, Time Magazine called one of his novels, I think it was Infinite Jest, one of the best novels published in the last hundred years. How about that? He was a genius with words. He once wrote a sentence over a thousand words long. But a few years before the end of his life, he gave what's now a famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio. It's become so famous, it's been put on audiobook and you can find it on Amazon. This is what he said to the graduating class. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. 
Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He said, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. And a few years after giving that speech, David Foster Wallace took his own life. And his last words were this, and they're frightening. He said this, something will eat you alive. You know what? Something's eating Jonah alive in chapter four. The worship of his own people. It was the good thing that broke bad. When they meet, number one, Jonah gets angry. So what does God do in return? Number two, God gets compassionate. Verse five says, says Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Again, every commentator says what he's doing is going out and rooting for God to blow them up, for God to blast them, to the destruction of his enemy. But look at verse six. What will God do to the one who's rooting for people to die? It says, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. What's God doing? Well, God is being as compassionate towards a lost prophet as much as he was being compassionate towards a lost city. And how did this make Jonah feel about the plant? It says, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. And again, this is supposed to be funny here because this is the first thing Jonah's been happy about the whole story. (laughs) But at dawn the next day, verse seven, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. Uh Uh-oh, not good. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head. He grew faint and wanted to die. Again, it says, it'd be better for me to die than live. And now we're about to see What's at the very bottom, the center of the heart of the God of the universe. God comes to Jonah now and he wants to have a conversation about the plant. Verse nine, God said, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. We're like, we know, Jonah, this is the third time you've told us in six verses. But here God reveals his true intention with the plant which was to teach Jonah's heart something about God's heart. Verse 10, the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. It came up overnight. It died overnight. This is a real plant, by the way, called the ricinus plant, the castor oil plant, fastest growing plant in the Middle East. But God says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Now, this is remarkable because this word concern means to have pity on, to feel emotionally connected to something. God's saying this, Jonah, how you felt about the plant is how I feel about the people. 
How you felt about the plant is how I feel about the people. Losing the plant affected you emotionally. And these people are lost from me. And the lostness of people affects me emotionally. God's saying, I am emotionally connected to and affected by the worst people in the world. And it gets even more stunning because God immediately goes on to call the Ninevites, he describes them like this, as people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Listen, this is almost insulting to all of us. After all, think about it. The Ninevites were a group who, for example, after conquering another people, they would do things like this. They would make their now conquered subjects, the ones who lived, make them grind up the bones and the bodies of their murdered dead family members, dig up the bones of their ancestors and grind them up in front of the Ninevites as if to communicate them this message. Your past is gone. Your future is ours. Your history, your culture are meaningless. The Ninevites were brutal, horrific, but God says it's like they're a little lost. They're just mixed up right now. Can you see why Jonah might have been a little mad. Now, God never called what the Ninevites did right. He never calls it good or anything like that. No, in chapter one, he called it wicked. Go preach against the wickedness of the city because he does, he has to call evil, evil. But how does he see people? How do you see people? This is not how I would have described the Ninevites. Like some kids who took a wrong turn on their bikes in a neighborhood. What's God doing? Again, showing compassion both to the Ninevites and to Jonah. Compassion to the Ninevites by sending them a prophet to preach. Compassion to Jonah by doing spiritual surgery on his heart. A man by the name of B.B. Warfield. Maybe you've heard of his name. He was a New Testament scholar. And he did a little study on the nature on the characteristics of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And do you know the single characteristic most associated and mentioned of Jesus, of course, is compassion. Over and over and over, the gospels say Jesus had, he said he felt compassion. Compassion for people who are lost. Jesus said, he looked at a people, he said, it's like they're lost, they're sheep. They're harassed. They've got nobody to shepherd them, care about them. And, and then he told his most famous parable about what? A lost coin, lost sheep, two lost sons. What is sin if not lostness? And then on the cross, as people are killing him, crucifying, murdering him, what did Jesus Christ pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I know they're killing me. But they're a little lost. They're just mixed up. They can't tell their right hand from their left. How about those people over there in your Nineveh? Those people over there in that group people party right now. How do you see them? I think God looks at our Ninevehs and says, yeah, maybe what they're doing isn't right. But you should know they emotionally affect me just like you, child, son, daughter, emotionally affect me. 
all I want is to bring all of you home. And that's why I've sent you, Jonah. Number one, when Jonah meets God, (laughs) Jonah gets angry. God gets all compassionate. Number three, we get challenged. Look at the final verse of Jonah. The book of Jonah, you should know, is the only book of the Bible that ends with the question. How about that? Also a question. All right. (laughs) Verse 11, God ends like this. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? More than 120,000 people. They can tell the right hand from their left. And also many animals. Question mark. Book over. God says, look at all the people. He says, my heart soars when I get around humans and animals too, by the way. Not just because God loves animals or he's an animal lover. He is, but he made the animals, okay? But also because cattle in that day were mobile, methane-producing ATMs. Cattle were the financial infrastructure of the ancient world. So God's saying this, I care about the whole city, its infrastructure, the people, the businesses, its government, its institutions. He cares about it all. But then God like shoots this final question like an arrow aimed at Jonah. Should I not have compassion, feel pity for, concern about, be moved by the lives and souls of the Ninevites? And when we hear this question, we think, yes, God, you totally should. Like that's, that's your job, right? You should definitely feel for them. It's who you are. Of course, at first we, we think that who God's talking to here is clear. It, it seems like he's asking Jonah, if that's who I am and that isn't that who you should be, Jonah? We think that God is saying to Jonah, your heart should be like mine, Jonah. We think that's what God is saying. So we think who he's talking to is clear or is it? Because on one hand, sure, yeah, he's asking the question directly to Jonah. So let's ask first, what happened to Jonah? Where did his heart end up? Well, I'm happy to announce that for the first time all along, I can say, you should let your heart be at least a little like Jonah's. Here's how. Think about it. The book ends on a cliffhanger with the question, who else could have reported this? Maybe somebody else helped Jonah capture the story, write it down, but it's his story, meaning this, no one else could have known Jonah's story unless he told them, which meant Jonah went back home and told it. He wasn't too proud to go back and talk about his whole ridiculous God, you're too loving speech, you know. He wasn't too proud to make himself look as bad as he truly was. In other words, he had finally been humbled and changed when he came face to face and heart to heart with the compassion of Almighty God. He went back home and told his story, a changed person, which means now, effectively, Jonah's kind of stepped out of the way of the arrow of the question, and he ducks and allows it to head towards somebody else. As the book closes, the question isn't aimed at Jonah anymore. It's aimed at you, aimed at me, aimed at us. Will you, will we be people with a heart like God's who has great concern for lives and people? Listen, we have concern for our little shady plants, don't we? We would rather sometimes, we get more worked up about our creature comforts than we do about the state of human souls and lives, their connection to God, see? You ever asked yourself, should I not love my great city? 
Should I not love people unlike me? Other languages, other religions, other cultures, other ethnicities, other political parties, should we not have great concern for them, allow their pains and hurts to emotionally affect us? How do we begin to answer God's question? Shot like an arrow, two ways. One begins with seeing, of course, the compassion Jesus Christ had for you. Where did God prove his love for all of us Ninevites and Jonas? Come on, it was on the cross. God sent a far greater Jonah into our world, but we didn't listen. We killed him. Oh, but like Jonah up out of the fish, he rose as a sign that death and sin don't get the last word. And when you see that, Jesus' compassion for you, yes, you know, you can can start to love God back, get his heart, stop running. But the other way to begin to answer God's question starts with not just seeing how much compassion God has for you, but by seeing how much compassion God has for the whole world. And to help with that, like I mentioned earlier, I want to end a little bit differently. Just a moment, I'd like to invite someone up here. You're going to see someone I love quite a lot. His name is Peter, Peter Dusan. He is a regional evangelist for Every Nation Campus. That's the campus ministry, a part of our greater spiritual family called Every Nation. He bases out of this church with his wife, Elisa, and four children. I've known Peter since he was a college student. He led our campus chapter down at Texas State in San Marcos, grew that near the Springs Church, which he pastored for many years before turning it over about a year and a half ago to Alberto Lopez. He's currently enrolled in the first ever class of Every Nation Seminary, brand new, fully accredited seminary, representing with the swag today. And he just returned from a two-week intensive in Manila in the Philippines. He's got a few stories to share about our global family and how that can point us towards the compassion of God. Would you welcome Peter as he comes? Peter, thank you. Mr. Morgan. Y'all, God's compassion never fails. And he never fails to help us see it, even when we're distracted by other things. Again, every nation is our global family of churches, and I'm going to share some stories of men and women who really do consider their identity, Mosaic, wrapped up in yours. And I hope to help us share the same sentiment for them on our end. So for security reasons, we've blurred some of the faces and changed some of the names here. This here is a picture I took at lunch last week. Sam is the man in the red shirt and the black jacket on the left. He was a famous international boxer for Bangladesh. Before on a trip for work, he almost died of a sickness in a Japanese hospital. But a Christian nurse from Tokyo laid hands on Sam and preached the gospel. And Jesus not only healed him, but also converted him to himself. Sam then went to our mission school in Manila, and he met Jane sitting next to him there. And they married, and they moved back to Bangladesh to plant a church, which is only an idea you would get from the Holy Spirit. After 10 years of hard labor, their church had ballooned, our church, had ballooned to over 100 members, which is like a super mega church in Bangladesh. They were reaching imams and former Al-Qaeda youth members. Uh, And at that point, most of the church had been hospitalized at one point or another because of persecution. 
And when he was uh, connecting with one of our, our leaders in Manila, one of the American pastors, the American pastor said, hey, Sam, what do you need from us? And Sam said, hey, can you help us set up a secure website so that some of the discipleship tools that we've been able to develop, that we can have it out there in case, you know, the authorities kill me, we can keep growing together? The site's up now. And so are eight other churches growing all around Bangladesh. Hallelujah. Can't stop, won't stop. Mark, on the other side, the bald guy in the blue sweatshirt on the right, he's an Irani who got saved at our church in Dubai a few decades ago. Then he went back to plant a church in Tehran. He was super bold, super fruitful, until he was captured by the Revolutionary Guard, imprisoned and tortured, and most of the people in his church scattered. But quite miraculously, he escaped not only from detention, but also he escaped Iran, and he is planting Farsi-speaking churches to Iranian refugees in Turkey and in France. And now with Mark gone, our friend, uh, our friend Nate, we'll call him Nate, almost slipped up there, Nate has been planting churches all around Iran. He's got nine churches going. Uh, this is a picture of him leading a secret church meeting out in the desert bush in Iran. And then this next picture is baptizing those guys in the Persian Gulf. <laughs> One more picture. Thank you, Jesus. This picture with these guys with me. On the left is Luis Asanero from Peru. He's going to help me, God willing, and a few others to, to plant a new work in Mexico City. And then hopefully next year in Buenos Aires. And at a significant cost personally and to the church that he leads in Lima. And to him, it's totally worth it. Uh, the guy in the middle, trying to pull off a blazer with track pants, that's my friend Shemek. He's from our Every Nation Church in Krakow, Poland. His church has been both traumatized and revitalized by the flood of Ukrainian immigrants from our churches in Ukraine in the, in the last several months. In fact, this was kind of what he says, it was the missions opportunity he never planned for. But it's really mobilized our church to start praying for and planning for planting churches in Russia, in the Baltics. Lastly, to the right is my friend Ronnie. He leads our very first church in Uganda, very first church in all of East Africa. And he's really struggling to keep up with what God has chosen to break out in revival right in the middle of this pandemic. And if you knew of the poverty and the, the suffering that daily Ronnie and his church overcome, you would be shocked to know that his urgent focus is how they can plant churches in Rwanda and Kenya and whether they can send Christians to Sudan and Somalia, whether they be missionaries or martyrs or somewhere in between, just that they would be sent from Uganda to preach Jesus. Simply put, these folks don't have the resources necessarily that we have, but to them it doesn't matter because they are urgently aware of what they do have to give to the nations, Jesus. And I pray that their example could encourage and embolden us as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you see our struggle here in the United States too. And you have compassion towards our struggle. So Lord, in your compassion, help us to lift our eyes up to your glory 
in the nations and beyond our own anger and beyond the blindness of our culture wars. Lord, whatever drives these men and women, it's from you. And Jesus, we want more of you. We need more of you. Father, you're not calling us to to go do big things for you necessarily, but to trust in your bigness in the nations and your bigness in our families, in our neighborhoods, our work environments. And so help us to Help us to recommit to sowing good seeds that you call us to sow unto this city and unto the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.